Kia ora, I'm Erin Keem and you're listening to Conversations About Closets with my closest thousand friends. I started this project to get me through a gloomy Seattle winter, which was hitting me hard. The thing is, I love women. Why not showcase them? Why not call women I've never met, have our first conversation, record it and turn it into a podcast? So that's what I did. I didn't edit, I still don't. Some days I'm on fire, some days not so much, and sometimes I even forgot to ask questions about closets. But all my guests are amazing. Listen up, get to know them, you'll be glad you did. If you want to be a guest on my show, go to erinkeem.com. I'd love to meet you. Aroha for listening, here's today's episode. Elizabeth. Hello, how are you doing? Good, that was perfect timing. My dog just decided she wanted to go outside. Now, of course, she's decided she wants to come back in again. (laughs) (laughs) Dogs are great that way, aren't they? They are. Now, I am talking to Elizabeth Monnier-Williams. Did I pronounce Monnier right? Yes, yes, that's from uh, my ancestral French folks, I guess. If you go far enough back, there's French in the family, but not so much anymore. But it does occasionally make people ask me if I'm bilingual, and sadly, I'm not. So. Yes, but you speak Buffy. So I do speak Buffy. I, I was I, I always enjoy talking to, to every woman. It's a privilege, but I have to confess that when I listened to your TED talk, I thought we're gonna have to do two podcasts because I could talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer for the entire 20, 25 minutes. I'm game. Let's do it. Perfect. First of all, Elizabeth Monnier-Williams is, among other things, a fantasy writer, and she has an incredible TED Talk. Now, the TED Talk is called Having It All, Why We Need New Stories About Female Superheroes. Now, that was TEDx Waterloo Women Talk. Uh, I found it very easily on YouTube. Yes. Now, I just listened to this while I was walking the dog around the park, and I was blown away. You start off talking about the myth of having it all, and you give some examples from real life, such as Vera Wang and Hillary Clinton. Uh, can you tell me about some of the other women you chose and why? Sure. Um, so when I put, when I did that talk, it was December 1st, 2012. And earlier that year, Anne-Marie Slaughter had published her piece in The Atlantic, you know, having it all, where that sort of phrase kind of became a cultural moment, a cultural icon. And so I started thinking about the women that media and society tell us have it all. Vera Wang's fashion empire, um, Oprah Winfrey's media empire, someone like Condoleezza Rice, who was you know, Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton also has held many, many positions in the US government, people like Heather Reisman in Canada, who has the Indigo Book Empire. And then, oh, her name escapes me, but she's the founder of Spanx, Sarah... I want to say. Sarah Blakely. Yes, Sarah Blakely. So I was looking at them and, you know, you sort of look at them and you think, man, how do they do it? Because the hours don't scale. And you think about all the things that are on their plates and like, how do you manage? And so one of the ideas that came to me through that talk was to be like, well, you never really know what goes on with women in that echelon, because I think very few of them, maybe Oprah at this stage in her life, can afford to be really blunt about the challenges and the ups and downs. Because when they do that, you're sort of putting yourself up and that inevitably kind of means saying, you know, other people, maybe we're doing this or that. Like, there's a hero villain narrative. And I think very few living people can afford to tell that kind of story about themselves. Whereas if you look at someone like Buffy, 
we can live the whole adventure, right? From the moment she's chosen as a slayer, right through her her many deaths and uh, her continuation on as a superhero. Sort of my through line through that talk. I had to stop at the park and do a happy dance when you mentioned Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Jean Grey. Mm-hmm. Very, and, and make sure you listen to the TED Talk as to why these women truly represent the hero villain villain and the sacrifice that women are expected to make uh you specifically mention what you call the refrigerator which is Mm -hmm. where basically female superheroes go to die and they just don't come back again but speaking specifically i I will get people to listen to the talk but you parallel jean gray and buffy Mm -hmm. and we'll go into that very briefly the first time i read a superhero comic was when i was 14 and i needed escapism and the very first one i bought was because it had female superheroes on the cover and I just hadn't seen that before. Yep. Uh, from memory, it was Dazzler, it was Kitty Pride, it was Storm, and I think it was Spider-Woman. Right, yeah. Uh, and I think there's that moment where that's why representation matters, right? And we're being told that by people on so many fronts in terms of gender issues, identity issues, um, nationalities, cultures, if you don't see people who look like you in the story, it's harder to believe that your story matters. And one of the points I make in the talk is that if different content creators find new ways to tell that story, I think we, the audience, find new ways to live it, which I think is really exciting. One of the most recent examples of that is the incredible film, The Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's astounding on so many levels. And unfortunate piece there is that you know Chadwick Bosman has passed on and we won't get to see what he does with that role uh, unfortunately but at least we have that iconic piece and it's so complicated and what I love about that story is how it makes space for nuance where his villain says like that line that stands out to so many people uh, where he talks about people jumping from the ships rather than living a life of slavery and indentitude in, in America and that that willingness to talk about pain and cultural memory is something that I think is really new and exciting about superhero stories. And obviously uh, the characters of Shuri and uh, Okoye, who's my favorite, the general, I love her so much. Um, There's so many new opportunities opening up for women. But when I was doing the talk, I was sort of looking at the heroes I'd grown up with in the nineties and Buffy and Jean were sort of those iconic pieces that I looked at there. So most of the talk focuses on them. And then it started to look at where the story was going in 2012 and Black Widow and Daenerys from Game of Thrones were sort of the two new pieces that I was like, oh, it's everything's gonna change. And then in the space of the same week, I watched both those characters implode. And the idea of the, the refrigerating to sort of return to your earlier point, I have to give credit there to Gail Simone, who is a comic book artist and writer. Um, actually, I believe she's just on the writing side, but she's worked with you know huge numbers of teams at uh, DC and I believe Marvel as well. And she's the one who really noticed the pattern and she started the website Women in Refrigerators, where she looks at the pattern of how many times women's stories meet the same at dead ends, right? They lose their power, they go crazy, or they die, or in some cases, all of the above. And unfortunately, we saw those storylines play out with the new characters as well in sort of interesting ways that like things change, but are they really changing? It's a really interesting question. I want to bring up WandaVision, but Jean sure. Grey for, let, let's just take a minute. Sounds like you have an exciting background going on. Oh, yeah, I, I live near a fire station and unfortunately they do come by periodically. I've got the window shut, but hopefully it won't be too intrusive. 
how fortunate that we have fire engines. You might be hearing a little bit of background noise with me because the dog decided to go outside again. Jean <laughs> Grey, for those who don't know who she is, was one of the original X-Men. Uh, note that it's called X-Men. Uh, mm-hmm. And she was a mutant. And uh, I remember seeing the X-Men, the very first X-Men movie in the theatres in Tokyo. And I went back and saw it four times. And wow. it was the first movie that really... Uh, restarted the whole superhero genre even before Marvel kicked in. Yes. Speaking of, of female characters at the moment, before we get back to Buffy, because, you know, that, that that's going to come up again, WandaVision. Wanda yeah. herself, spoiler alert, she is crazy. Her power, yeah. uh, her power is linked to the fact that she is not sane. So yeah. yet again, and in a way, her she she has to suicide on an emotional level. She has to give up what she wants uh, for the greater good. Yes. And I was glad they didn't physically make her die because sometimes that happens too. Um, You see it in young adult fiction as well. I don't know if you're familiar with um, A Court of Thorns and Roses or the Throne of Glass series by Sarah J. Maas, but she has characters who both face... um, kind of annihilation as part of a, a milestone in their self-development. So it's it's a metaphor you see everywhere. But to come back to Wanda, it's it's so interesting to me after we've gone through a pandemic and so many people have suffered loss on so many levels, this idea that her grief for vision and her grief for her life that she thought she was going to get is literally the thing that unravels her and makes her sort of unfit to use her power um, and makes her vulnerable to the antagonist in that storyline. So yeah, it's sort of like... It would be, it's interesting now to see as Wanda sort of put herself back together through that season, if they're going to let her go and evolve and if she's going to become, you know, the true expression of Scarlet Witch, or if there's going to be other hobbles and, and handy and markers holding her back from sort of embracing that power. It'll be really interesting to see. And I regret I used the word crazy. Uh, that was, that, that came, uh, there, that was a, there was some male characters in there who, who perceived her in that way and mm-hmm. decided that she needed to be stopped. Uh, whereas there was a female character, a woman of color, who said, who pointed out that Wanda was the solution and mm-hmm. to be able to get through to her, whereas uh, the white male character just wanted to blow her up. Um, at yeah. least she was able to walk away with her power. Yes. Yes, after many challenges and setbacks. And it's hard to talk about women superheroes without sort of ableist language creeping into it. And like, when I look back at my own talk in 2012, it was something that I wasn't challenging. The discourse around that hadn't evolved sort of as far to sort of my own consciousness, but it's definitely something I'm mindful of uh, when I'm writing now, the way to which anything that's outside what maybe the default expectation or the male storyline gets classified as, as other, we have that dichotomy in the West where, you know, it's black and it's white, it's good and it's evil it's male and female, it's sane, and it's and the label in the past has been crazy. And I think what's so interesting now is seeing more neurodivergence becoming more normalized in storytelling and seeing, again, where that goes as well. It's an interesting trend. Well, woman, have you written a thesis? Because, <laughs> I was, because you should. <laughs> I was going to be uh, do a PhD in science fiction, actually. Uh, that's sort of what I was setting out to do when I did my master's. And I was an independent scholar for a while. And I went to conferences and met people like Ursula Le Guin when she was with us. And it was really exciting. And then I was like, oh, but, you know, for some of my other life goals, I don't know how sustainable this is going to be. And then what I really realized is that I'd 
I'm more interested in writing the stories than analyzing them, although it's super fun and I enjoy it in this kind of context. I think though, if I'm looking at what do I want to accomplish in my time on earth, I'm more interested in, in writing my own books than in analyzing others. But it's something I really, really love and enjoy. Speaking of analytics, you did have a website or you do have a website called The Analytic Eye. Where does that come from? Oh, sure. So The Analytic Eye is my was my blog. It's sort of defunct now, but I started that on my second mat leave to keep myself entertained. Um, I love my children and they're so much fun and it's, it's great to interact with them. But I found that my intellectual thought was sort of stagnating when I was on mat leave, which in Canada is a year, which is a, a wonderful privilege that we have here. And so I started the blog to sort of myself entertained and engaged in other ideas. And uh, it was a really great way to stretch myself and write about topics that I wasn't encountering in my day-to-day -day work. And it also led inadvertently to me getting a book chapter published in a marketing book. So it sort of prefigured the second half of my career, which has been working in technology and doing work in marketing and communications. We, uh, would you tell me a little bit more about the marketing communications work that you do before we head back to your your career, your, your other side, excuse me, as a fantasy writer? Sure. So uh, when I realized that sci-fi PhD land wasn't probably going to be the best fit for me, uh, I figured, well, working in academia is the next best choice. So I spent nine years, two at a, an all-girls private school, two at the University of Toronto and five at York University, uh, working in higher ed and working in research communications, which was fascinating because you got to work with all the bright minds and engaging in their ideas and research. And then it was actually through that same mat leave transition where I realized I really wanted to stretch and do work that would challenge me further. And the budgets and the capacity for, for really exciting projects, a lot of that you have to step into industry to find just because of the way uh, financing models work. So for me, that meant stepping away from academia and I moved to the MARS Center. So MARS stands for Medical and Associated Research Center. I think they don't usually use the acronym anymore, but basically it was all health tech research coming out of the uh, academy. And I was working with academic founders who wanted to take their ideas to market. So I spent four years there and then I went in-house with a number of startups. And I've you know, had sort of more roles on the marketing side as I went along, although I came into it through the communications door. Uh, thank you. I, I am also, I'm listening and I'll probably have to cut this tiny bit out because, you know, obviously I lost the plot for a minute, but I was just thinking <laughs> incredibly articulate, articulate. I, I do, I can pronounce the word articulate you are. Which thank is, you. Which I'm, you have managed to, you're bringing that to your writing. You yep. can also find e.m.williams. Is that the name you prefer to write under? Uh, yes. I've already had the experience of having work I'm doing in my fiction life start to rub up against my tech sector life. And I think for ease of use, I try to keep them a little bit at arm's length. It gives me a little more latitude. So E.M. Williams is the name I'll probably publish under because my full name is so distinctive uh, in terms of being memorable and easy to find. But yes, um, yeah, that's sort of the story about that. It's it's not a super deep alias and it sort of falls apart if you spend any time looking at it. The advice I got from a friend was, listen, in this day and age, unless you're going to be the kind of writer who never gives readings and never does appearances, as soon as there's an image of you, people can figure out all the branches of you because image search is so good. So I was like, although, okay. Although I couldn't find you on LinkedIn or Facebook. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that's surprising with LinkedIn. I'll have to send you a, a link to that. But um, I, Facebook, I'm less active. I was looking for Ian e. Williams. I, I uh, wasn't able. 
I did not dig deep enough. You're writing a five-part action series. Excuse yes. me, a five-part action fantasy series. Can you give us a teaser? Tell us what it's about. Sure. So the really funny part about that TEDx talk was I did it because I'd had a, an idea for an academic paper way back in my graduate work about the Buffy and Jean story. And I was like, well, this is really interesting and it's sad if it dies on the vine, but I don't have the discipline basically to push it through as a peer-reviewed paper, which is what's required to get it published. So I thought, oh, could I do something else with it? And I pitched the TEDx talk and that went really well. It was a fun experience. And I didn't know at the time, but that whole talk is me speaking to me. I think I'm talking to like the entertainment industry, like think about what you're doing and maybe broaden out the kind of stories you're telling. But no, I'm talking to me and I'm giving myself 10 years of homework in that talk basically. And so at the time I've written all my life, I spent most of my 20s trying to write a very elaborate world building alternate fantasy kind of idea and it kind of collapsed under its own weight. And so again, through that mat leaf period, I had this moment where I came home from the gym and it was raining and I pulled into the car, into the garage and you know, it's pouring rain and I'm listening to the radio and the song Don't Stop Believing is on the radio. And I sit there and I realize I have stopped believing that I'll ever write anything and I sob for like 20 minutes, because in that moment, I believe the story I've told myself about what my life would be was a lie. And then you sort of pick yourself up and go back on. I think that talk, that moment in the driveway happens after the TEDx talk, but it's, you know, the way time and memory are, I'm not sure anymore. But suffice to say, about a year and a half after doing the talk, I watched uh, the film Edge of Tomorrow with Emily Blunt, and I watched the second of the Captain America movies. And my current project came at me like a freight train. It took me six months to realize that it was a book. It was just sort of this like weird story I was telling myself in the car to entertain myself. And then I was having a, a meeting with a friend and I was sort of like, hey, I think this is what I'm doing. And she said, Elizabeth, that's the most commercial idea you've ever come up with. You need to run right after that. So I did. I started writing on my phone using Wattpad. I didn't publish as I went because my story is diverse. Um, Per the charge that I make to myself in the talk, I'm like, we have to tell stories about everyone, not just people who are white and women who are white and men who are white. It has to be bigger and broader. So I sort of took that charge seriously. So my story is set in Toronto and it's about two twins who are in their mid thirties and they're coping with the death of their mother. Uh, she's passed away to breast cancer. And, you know, it's that we all deal with in midlife where, you know, one sibling is closer and the other sibling is far away. The brother is working as an emergency room physician in Vancouver and the sister's working as a realtor in Toronto. So she has a much more flexible life. And basically as the story opens, she's like, can you help me deal with mom's estate? And he's like, I'm so fed up with this. I don't have time. And that night she goes out into her garage and she's attacked by these creatures from another dimension. And she realizes that their shared childhood in which he spent the next 10 years gaslighting her and telling her wasn't real is real and that they've been on standby for the apocalypse this whole time with their best friend. And so the story then goes from there and we see what happens to them. So it starts in Toronto and it becomes global and diverse very rapidly after that. I thought it was one book, turns out it's five. One way to describe this might be magical realism, but you mentioned superheroes. So yeah. these twins, they mm -hmm. are imbued with powers. They are, but they don't know it. So what they think they thought was sort of this strange meditative spiritual experience was basically like the the lesser form of the energy they were really trained to work with, which changes the second the creatures cross that sort of planar dimensional barrier. And so the second they're in play, 
their powers sort of amp up and take on another level. And then it's about questions of how do we do this? Who's going to help us? How does it become sustainable? What are the politics of doing this? How is our own culture and society going to accept or not accept us? Uh, those are sort of the questions in play. How do you think you're going to publish? Are you going to self-publish? Are you going to hybrid? Are you looking for a publishing house? Uh, I pitched an agent this week for the first time because I sort of thought, what the heck? But I think in my mind, I've been looking at self-pub the whole way. Part of the reason for that is because I come from marketing land, the access to data that you get through a self-publishing site really appeals to me. And the ability to make my own marketing collateral and sort of set up my own web of uh, filters and and inbounds and that sort of thing doesn't daunt me in the way that I know it does some folks working in writing who just want to write a book and then never think about it again um, in terms of the, the mechanics of publishing and distribution. So that part appeals to me. But, you know, if an agent came out of nowhere and said, hey, let's talk about your story, I would certainly explore it. But generally, I think publishing as a medium is getting really complicated. I think it's a bit like journalism in that the structures and processes that helped people to create work in like, you know, sort of 50s through to the early 2000s don't quite exist in the same way. And I've talked to folks who've been, you know, mid-list authors or debuted authors whose work hasn't been as popular. What I like about self-pub is you can play the long tail of the internet. And if it takes a while to build a following, so be it. Uh, it gives you a lot of flexibility. I also like that it's letting me take up space that I make for myself, not necessarily taking up space that other folks who, if they don't have the same skill set, might find harder to do. So that's sort of my current thinking on it, but it's it's evolving. The thing about self-publishing too is that there's, offer, there's often a greater chance of a higher income. Your percentage per sale yes. is higher. Yes, having, publishing. having spent time in entrepreneurship land, like the idea of giving somebody 80% of your margins right off the chop strikes me as kind of nuts but people do it and enjoy it and I guess there's folks who there are people who want to publish for having that book in their hands and having the the vetting that comes from working with a publishing house I feel like for me I want my stories to be out in the world positioned the way I want to position them and I want them to be read and however that happens I'm less attached to the material object I think than some of the other some of my peers perhaps there's also uh, your lead time is much shorter. With traditional yes. publishing, it could take you two years to get a book on the shelf. Yes, it could. 100% it could. Whereas uh, I've worked with a bunch of readers and beta feedback folks. I think I'm at 35 now in terms of people who've given comments at various points in the manuscript's life. And I've worked in particular with sensitivity readers, um, just to vet out some of my assumptions and make mistakes privately. And so I think once it comes back from the current person it's with, I'd be sort of six months out from publication if I go self-pub. And the sort of time of that is really appealing. But it's hard because you don't want to make the decision that sort of cuts off that pathway if it's long term. There is something to be said for the distributed distribution power of publishers. And I don't want to discount that by any means. You mentioned sensitivity readers. Mm -hmm. uh, this is encouraging people to read your story who are from the community that you're representing yes. and asking them for their insight, for those of you who haven't, uh, who don't know that term. This brings up something I heard at a writing conference recently that agents are looking for uh, writers who are using own voice. How, yes. do you feel, how do you feel about the fact that you're representing diverse characters while perhaps not being from that particular, uh, not, not being those people. 
No, it's it's a challenge for sure. I think there's there's tension either way, right? There's the sense that as an outsider to some of the particulars of those communities, I won't ever write it the same way someone writing from an own voice's perspective will, and just accepting that that is true. On the other hand, because my story is set in Toronto, and Toronto is a very diverse, very sophisticated city where, you know, three quarters of the people you meet aren't born here, they're from somewhere else, everybody has so many fascinating stories. If I wrote a story that was only about white people, that would also be misleading. So it's kind of, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, but I feel like there's more worth in making the attempt and making mistakes and learning from it and accepting that you're not going to do it perfectly than in not not making the attempt. That's sort of where I come down on it. Um, but in terms of the need to diversify the publishing sector, I think one of the other reasons I'm leaning towards self-pub is that then I'm not taking up space that uh, own voices creators may need access to with traditional publishers. So there's something to be said for going out on my own in that context where you sort of live or die by your own preparations and on your head be it. And with self-publishing, there is a much faster turnaround. If you do get feedback, if you do want to alter your characters, if you want to add something to that, if you want to add more depth, if you want to get other perspectives, you do have that flexibility. For sure, for sure. I've had some really generous readers uh, read for me, like of the sort of 35 folks who've looked at it, I'd say 10 come from the different populations that I'm using. And then I also worked with two professional writers and editors to sort of get that sensitivity feedback at the level of someone who thinks about novels structurally, right? To make sure that someone who thinks about it in terms of a traditional publishing mindset would also have an opportunity to comment. And that's been a really interesting experience. So I'm just so grateful whenever someone says yes and they're willing to work with me. It's, uh, it's really gratifying. The, reason, the other reason I bring it up is that one of my fiction is set in New Zealand. We mm -hmm. have the largest, Auckland has the largest Polynesian nation. Right. In, uh, the, pretty much in the world, I'll claim that. And I have uh, cousins who are Polynesian. Uh, my character is part Polynesian. And uh, it's, uh, I, I will definitely be getting their feedback, their perspective. And uh, I, I, w I want to make sure that I add diversity because that's what I see in Auckland, but in a mm -hmm. way that is respectful. And as you said, as a way that doesn't take up space. So I'm, yeah. basically, I'm basically repeating what you said. Uh, heading back to Buffy, we talked about sure. how the fact that it is largely a white world. I mean, it was yes. from the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons I was attracted to Buffy, again, I discovered it in Tokyo, was that the female character was a young a young blonde cheerleader who, instead of running screaming from the big bad villain, turned around and staked, staked yes. the bad, uh, staked the villain, and that ties into the very very last episode of Buffy, where she's having a conclave with her family that she, her family, her chosen family that she works with, and there's a scuffle outside in the alleyway. She comes outside, deals with the vampire that's about to uh, eat a a helpless young gentleman. And he turns around to her and says, but you're just a girl. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a nice circling round to it. But as you said, it's a very, uh, there is a, a black vampire in there who makes it, who references it directly. He says, uh, you will find that um, Sunnydale is definitely of the Caucasian persuasion, which I thought was hilarious. So they did call it out. Speaking of one of the women of colour in Buffy, there was Kendra. Yes. who was a vampire slayer who was called into being when Buffy died temporarily uh, for a couple of minutes. 
but I will note that she was slaughtered by a female vampire who was incredibly powerful, a psychic, had uh, very unique abilities, and was da 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 insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the challenges, like, I think Buffy works as a show because the actors playing all those roles really commit to it, right? And they're doing the best with what they're given, including the actor who plays Kendra and the actor playing Drusilla, those two characters you mentioned, as well as Sarah Michelle Gellar, who plays Buffy. I think where Buffy, I mean, it's difficult because it's like revisionist history at this point, right? But you can definitely see the lack of diversity in the writing room um, in terms of perspectives and feedbacks. compared to say the writing room team for Captain America Winter Soldier, which was more diverse and did a, and like talked about the sort of colonial impact of superheroes and race in America and what it means to have a black man carry Captain America's shield. They talked about it much more intensely, directly and deeply. And I think that made the show's treatment of those issues much more interesting. And I mean, if I have one regret for the whole, uh, the talk that I did, I think there's a moment where I'm talking about the Avengers and I'm like, oh yeah, and you know, they've got Natasha Romanoff and she's sort of the only woman at this point. I would love if Joss Whedon changed that. I think one of the things that doesn't age well in that talk is just how fraught as a figure Joss Whedon himself was. And we've certainly seen pieces of that sort of through other projects he's been involved in from Dollhouse right through to the Justice League. And I think it just speaks to, again, that you need more people in a room able to sort of speak back and say, actually, I don't think we're doing a good job of this, or can we diversify this way? Or can we call this out or make opportunity for this kind of conversation? And I think that's becoming more standard in TV and film production now. And I think that's a really positive change, but definitely when you look at the talk at the time, it's one of those things where I watch it now with 2021 eyes and I'm like, oh, Elizabeth, you believe so blindly and that did not pay off for you. So, yeah, it's it's interesting how their experiences and relationships to these cultural artifacts evolve over time. Buffy was 30 years ago. She I, was. I still watch her on a regular basis, but she was 30 years ago and she was groundbreaking at the time. Oh, for sure. She certainly was, which is and it's not to take anything away from what people were doing then. Right. It's that saying of the best you can with what you've got. And I usually generally assume that that's what people are doing. There has been some backlash against Joss Whedon. I'm a, I'm a huge uh, fangirl. I have a photo of myself with the women of Whedonverse. I kid oh, you wow. not that I, that I got at Comic-Con. There awesome. Has been some back, there has been some backlash against Joss Whedon lately. Yeah, there um, has. There has. Uh, it's important to have those accountability conversations happening. And I think the echoes there echo in so many other sectors, you know, from tech to politics to news. Um, you know, it's it's sort of of a piece with the Weinstein tragedy and and all those other pieces. Accountability matters, and people sort of need to listen and understand the impact that their behavior can have on others. Can I point out the Justice League sucked? Yeah, it wasn't. It's not my jam. I'm more like I don't want to. I know there are people who love it, and like the the fans of that universe are very very passionate. I I tend to fall more on the Marvel side where it's a little lighter. I, I find the grim, dark tone of that universe, uh, with the exception of, say, the first Wonder Woman film, I find that really dark and a little bit limiting. But I know some people really, really love it, and it's so their jam. And you can definitely see a difference between uh, the Snyder Cut versus the current one, um, versus the previous one that was released. So, it, you know, our relationship to all these texts evolve over time. And it's really exciting to sort of be part of that conversation and to envision a time where work I'm working on or you're working on might also be part of that conversation. 
I will give a shout out for Aquaman. Yeah, Aquaman I, was hilarious. I love Jason Momoa. He was great in Game of Thrones. He's great in a CBC show called Frontier, um, which is sort of set in the early part of uh, Canada's colonization history, where sort of the settlers are coming and interacting with folks. Uh, I, I enjoy him in sort of whatever roles he does. And occasionally he's here in town filming, which is a nice treat for us in Toronto. A good reason to visit if it wasn't for COVID. The Amen. First one, the first Wonder Woman movie I watched four times. I went with four groups of female friends. Uh, the second Wonder Woman movie, not so much. Yeah, they did that thing where they sort of, I think the challenge with that one to me, like the the dynamic between Wonder Woman and Cheetah, uh, who's played by, oh, she's from Saturday Night Live, oh. Kristen Wiig. I think oh. it could have been really rich, but they didn't They didn't make them want anything. Like Wonder Woman was just sort of sitting around being like, it's really sad. My boyfriend of 60 years ago died. And it's like, really? This lady's awesome. She hasn't had a new thought since then? <laughs> Come on. Like, I think that <laughs> flaw is there in the storytelling for whatever reason and it sort of constrains what they can do with the role it's like well what is woman wonder woman trying to achieve aside from working in with these artifacts at this point in her life you know like i don't i don't really find that plausible that a woman who grew up with themistera and with such awesome women all around her i find the parts of that movie that are most enjoyable are when we see her um back with with the other amazons and interacting with them those parts of the movie really really sing oh I, it drove me completely, utterly crazy. There she is, sitting in a cafe, saying plaintively, no, just one, you know, table for one, because the yeah. only man I ever loved, the only person of importance in my life, you know, uh, blew up 60 years ago. Where were her women friends? Where were yeah. the, the women that she She grew up surrounded by women. She had the most incredible cadre of women. Where were her women in 2021 i don't know well i guess 1986 right like the world of the movie is 80 in the 80s isn't that right with the costumes and the set design but yes i take your point it it also strikes me as something where you're like okay if the guy had died last week i get it but 60 years is a long time i think that's one of the challenges about writing compelling stories about people who are basically immortal right how do they stay <laughs> in the game and stay wanting things <laughs> I've also wondered what do they do about documentation? Obviously, yeah. in, the back, they, in the back, they have these secret, you know, dark web people that, that redo their birth certificates every 30 years or so. But surely you have to keep moving on. And yeah. what, do you, what, what do you do about your 401ks? What do you, what, how, do, how do you actually function? What do you do about social media? It's, it's always, there's always some plot flaws there. Yeah, social media and the proliferation of cameras make it really, really difficult. I think the best depiction of like, how does it perpetuate itself over time? The first Highlander movie, they kind of get into that where he has different dead aliases and it's always like a child who was orphaned and died young and he inherits. Anyway, they get into the mechanics of how wealth transfer works. And I remember thinking that was sort of fascinating. It's like a two-minute scene in the movie, but at least they made an effort to kind of talk about that, which I which I really enjoyed. Twilight, they were lucky. They had a psychic vampire who could basically predict the stock market. Yeah, you know the part that gets me about that series, and I love the first book is really great, like as a page turner experience, and as that that privileging of the female teenage gaze where you're sort of obsessed with that boy and you want him to look at you, but you don't want him to look at you. Like she brilliantly captures that. But the moment, I guess in Twilight where it all kind of 
implodes for me is I think it's like in the third or fourth film where Edward's like, Bella, I have infinite money. What do you want to do? And she's like, I just want to be with you. And I'm like, girl, really? <laughs> it's like, it's the same version of the Wonder Woman sitting at the cafe like table for one 60 years later. Like, come on, come on now. There must be something you want with infinite resources. I don't know. But that's my hang up and I'm sticking to it. I love those books. The I was troubled by the link to addiction, where she mm. basically goes catatonic when Edward goes away and that he had become such a drug. Uh, but yeah, it's very, a, very enjoyable books. Yeah, they're a wonderful model. I have a second series I'm working on sort of in the background that sort of takes the structure of Twilight but applies it to a girl who definitely wants something. She's an Olympian in training and she wants to win a gold medal for in the Olympics for swimming for Canada. And she meets a young man who is who is a mermaid living in Georgian Bay, but he's a guy. So I'm sort of playing with that structure in that universe because I was like, I would love to see a character you know, who's embroiled in that kind of saga, but who definitely has her own goals. And so I like the juxtaposition of the mermaid guy and the woman who wants to achieve in the swim pool. Like there's sort of some fun tension in there. So play through my first draft of that. It's the one I flip to when I'm sort of need a break from my anti-fantasy action saga. If you want a beta reader, I am all over the mer world. We won't Excellent. I'd love to spend 30 minutes talking about sex in superhero movies. Uh, the fact oh, sure. that if you are a mermaid or a merman, that could be really tricky unless you actually grow legs when you come onto land. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole the whole Superman, what on earth happens when he is actually with, uh, you know, um, oh gosh, I've just... Lois Lane. Lois Lane. But, but we won't go there. Hey, I've just been rereading uh, the Southern Vampire series. Oh, the Suki Stackhouse. Is that the Suki Stackhouse one? Yeah, Charlene Harris. Yeah. Yeah, I have read, I think I've read nine or ten of them. I don't know if I'm current to where the series is now. And I watched the first, everything but the last season of um, the TV show. What was it called? True Blood. True Blood. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot I admire about her world and her world, world building. And I think I'd say that's probably one of the closest analogies for what I'm doing, where it's sort of set in the modern world people have sort of everyday lives and jobs and yet this other piece is kind of sitting along beside it. Um, that sort of juxtaposition of real world people who talk and act and look like us with sort of fantastical elements is a, a pace that I, a space that I really find interesting and love to play with. Her power, who's one of her superpowers, excuse me, her ability is to meet is to read minds and that she she is considered it's considered a disability this woman has this incredible power and talent and it's considered a disability which brings me around to my mother who is mm -hmm. definitely getting more woke and who pointed out that bewitched is all about a a woman having to suppress her natural abilities and talents in order to fit in interesting yeah of course it is and i dream of genie in a way too right well she lives in a bottle Mm -hmm. she, she she can only pop out when she's commanded and her magic is all uh her, her magic is um guided by what somebody else wants what someone else wants so yeah but she did yeah. have a really fun evil twin sister yeah the evil twin sisters are often the best characters right like evil willow and the buffy verse oh absolutely mm -hmm. there's oh, so much absolutely. potential and ability to subvert tropes and kind of stand everything on its ear well, that's the great thing about world building. You can, uh, I, I read a book uh, recently called Unicorn Western, where the author said, 
hey, I can get away with anything because I've put a unicorn in a western. If you're not believing anything that's going on, <laughs> if, if I get things wrong about the Wild West, there's a unicorn. I love it. That's fantastic. So I know people can uh, find you by going to Instagram, which is fantastic. That's E.M. Williams Canada. That's right. And I really wanted to get into, excuse me. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I also have a Twitter for my writing account. It's at Mayushen, M-Y-U-S-H-E-N. You have a way to subscribe to find out about book news. Yes, uh, there's a very basic, very rudimentary, kind of wonky landing page that you can get to off my Instagram. I'm in the middle of uprevving it, but I'm like, nope, just put it out there. You'll fix it later. Uh, and people can subscribe if they want to follow along and hear about my book news. I tend to send a note out, I think, like once a year at this point. Maybe it'll pick up when I get closer to launch, but uh, it's definitely low volume if people are concerned about adding too many newsletters to their stack. Do you have a final destination? Because at the moment, it's fabulous-knitter with a few other things underneath uh, after it. I haven't built a writing website yet, but I will be. Um, And once that's there, I'll be posting about it on my Instagram. So it'll be a little more contained. Like I said, it's just I needed something quick and dirty to catch people's attention because otherwise it would be like I would just wait and not launch the Instagram and my coach was like no come on just do the thing you can fix it later but you should just do it and build in public and let people follow along with your adventures and sort of see where it's going and they can contribute one of the great things about self-publishing is that if you get ideas feedbacks uh interesting concepts from readers hey you can incorporate them for sure. And like, that's the beauty of what Wattpad has built. Um, I have really a special place in my heart for Wattpad. It nurtured me at a time when I really needed a safe place to sort of write and play. And I have nothing but respect for what the team has built there. One quick question. Do you work with a writing group? Do you have a critique group? Uh, I do in a way. So I took a course through the University of Toronto when I worked there many years ago, and I met my writing group. Uh, Unfortunately, one of the people in it passed away uh, due to cancer in 2013. And after that happened, the group sort of worked together a little less intensely, um, which was really, really sad. Um, But one of the women from that group Um, She and I still continue to meet and she's one of my strongest critique partners. She's a playwright. Her name is Diana Kolpak and she wrote a wonderful children's book called Stardust that she wrote and then she also she collaborated with a friend who took the pictures and she plays the clown in the pictures and the friend sort of took the the photos um, and she's written a number of plays as well. Uh, So I continue to work with Diana and she's a wonderful person and then there's a couple other Uh, a friend and one of my cousins who I do weekly check-ins with every week like what have you done what are you doing just so that you stay accountable and stay focused on your goals and that's been a godsend I can't resist what do you think of Captain America Uh, excuse me Captain Marvel Captain Marvel Oh, Captain Marvel. So I don't know Captain Marvel from the comics. I wasn't a comic book reader as a kid. I I came to comics through the Marvel series. I enjoyed Captain Marvel's storyline. I wished, I feel like the person who got robbed was uh, Natasha Romanoff's car- Black Widow, where we're finally getting a movie about her this year, but like the characters already died on screen. Um, and like, if you look at the the culmination of the Marvel movies, right, they had Gamora and Black Widow die in the same way, like falling to their deaths off a cliff. Like, you're like, really, guys? <laughs> we had no other options here. So that's been really too bad. I, I loved Black Widow's character, and I was looking forward to seeing her kind of get that peace uh, with the men. And so, yeah, she dies kind of unmourned. Um, Captain Marvel, I enjoyed her standalone movie. 
I liked the time travel. I thought the the bits like with Nick Fury and with uh, some of the other characters that they're including now, uh, like Monica Rambo, have been really exciting to see. I'm curious to see where they'll take that. Like, will we get a Captain Marvel Wanda sat, like team up? That might be really awesome. I'm curious to see where it goes. One thing that struck me about Captain Marvel, which I loved, was that like Jean Grey, her powers were dampened down at yes. the very beginning of the movie. She yes. had these Wonder Woman style bracelets, which kept her operating at least than who she actually was. Yeah. And she didn't have to die to get her full power back. So like, that's totally encouraging. And I'm here to see more of that for sure. Um, I really enjoy the performance of the actor. Um, it's Alice, is it Alison? No. Uh, oh. No, hold on. I can I can Google it, but but uh, give me a quick minute. But while I do that, uh, if you are interested in Wonder Woman, do track down uh, the, the uh, a book about Wonder Woman. Uh, her creator was William Moulton Marston, and mm -hmm. there's a ton of bondage in there. Oh, is... like the film about him and his wife and his mistress. I watched that. It was fascinating. Yes, yes. Dig dig deep into that story. That's. She's only she's only powerless when she's bound in chains by men. Wow, I mean that's a real mm -hmm. take, isn't it? Oh, Brie Larson, my mistake. There's, Thank uh, you. We're getting to the point where there's so many fascinating women in Marvel that it is getting challenging to keep them all straight, which is a wonderful state to be in. This is the longest podcast I've done uh, because I geek out on superheroes. <laughs> Thank you so so much for your time. Please include me as a beta reader. Oh, absolutely. And please make sure that you go to, you look for E.M. Williams on Instagram, uh, E.M. Williams Canada. And also, uh, what's the other best way to find you? Just go to your Instagram and that that will, uh, that's where you can find the fabulous Nita link to uh, join her mailing list. Perfect. Thank you, Erin, for having me on. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you. Anytime someone's like, do you want to sit down and geek out? I'm totally here for the conversation. So thank oh, you so we're, much. We're, we're going to be talking again. Bye. Excellent. Bye-bye.